All right, I know some of you are thinking you wish that was the end of the message, but it's not the case today. We actually have something I want to talk about. And uh, I've already alluded to the fact that today is a pretty important day at Restoration. It's both the day that we celebrate Mother's Day and the day that several of our families have just dedicated their children to Christ. And so in light of this, I want to spend this week and the next week talking about a truth from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, that talks about parenting. Certainly not the only truth in the scripture that addresses parenting, but this is a very important one. And we're going to look at it in two ways. Today we're really going to examine the principled truths that Paul brings to us. Next week we're going to, not that there, is, uh, not that there isn't practical teaching of what I'm talking about today, but next week I want to talk about some of the clear evidences or the ways that we can actually honor the teaching that Paul brings us this morning. And this teaching is found in a larger section of Scripture where Paul has been talking about how to have healthy relationships. It's a long run at the back end of the book of Ephesians, all addressing relationships, how we as people in all forms of relationship get along with each other in healthy and appropriate ways. And so throughout this whole relationship teaching, there's lots of things that have been said, but one common thread of health tying them all together. And it is understanding the necessity of godly authority. That is the one tie that binds every single relationship together in this passage. Whether it is our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with one another, our relationship with our husbands and wives and and marriages, our relationship in the workplace, and as we'll see here in a moment, between children and their parents. In every way, this idea of understanding what godly authority is and how to live it out in our lives is a critical element to having relationships that thrive and flourish here on earth. And so on this day, it's rather fitting that we spend some time talking about what it means to honor and obey parents, what that means for a child to do, and some of the interaction that a parent will have with a child. And so in case you don't know, while we're reading this from a book in the New Testament, this is actually a very old truth in the Bible. It is the fifth of the Ten Commandments, honor and obey your parents. And this is a pretty significant fact, because the Ten Commandments are the foundational rules of engagement for how God designed the world to function. And when they are followed, the idea behind them is that they have the potential to make our lives and the world we live in a better place. Right in the middle of this guide for living, this way to understand our role in the world and how to treat other people, right in the middle of these foundational commandments set before humanity to oblige, is this command for children to honor and obey their parents. It's one of the Big Ten, and for good reason. It's a clear instruction that says one of the safeguards that God has put in place to ensure that society flourishes and prospers is that children have a healthy level of respect for their parents, that they honor them, and equally as important, that parents have a healthy level of love, respect, and care for their children. I think it's very easy sometimes to read this verse in Ephesians and to forget the verses that follow it. We can reduce a teaching like this to a strictly authoritarian passage, which is what I hope to deconstruct today, obey, Or we can recognize that there's a lot of commands to obey in this passage in the whole section. In every way, we are told to raise our kids in a way that honor Jesus. And the platform for us to have any type of godly authority over our children is that we are doing our best to pursue the very same Jesus. And authority in the kingdom of God is never used for the benefit of self. It is always used for the benefit of others. We can see this in the very nature of who Jesus is. All authority, we read in the Gospel of Matthew, under heaven and earth and in heaven was given to him. He could have done anything he wanted with his authority and his power, but he chose it to redeem mankind, to free men and women from their sin, and to serve them. And so authority, while it can be a detrimental word or a problematic word at times, there is a very specific concept of authority in the Bible and in our world. 
And so this command clearly and certainly applies to children in the younger years. I think this is where a, a teaching like today might make more sense to us, especially if you are parenting or have parented or are considering parenting. We can certainly understand the, the command to honor and obey when our children are very young. But it gets more challenging to sort out as they grow into the teen years and into adulthood. And we'll briefly touch on that today and then expound upon that in more detail next week. And this is sort of when our grasp of this command will be greatly tested. Because this teaching is built on this idea of authority and obedience. Those words are here. And we're going to look at these things by firmly establishing what authority and obedience is and isn't in the Christian faith. And how that applies to this understanding of the relationship between parent and child. So I only have one idea that I want to mention to you this morning. We'll look at it from several ways, but there's one key truth I want to share with you this morning and to consider this morning. It is this. If we want to raise godly kids, which should be the goal of every man and woman on earth who loves Christ, if they have children, if we want to raise godly kids, we must have a godly understanding of what obedience is. We cannot have a worldly understanding of what obedience is here. We have to have an understanding of obedience that comes directly from the throne of heaven. And I'll reread to you the section of Ephesians we're going to look at today. Ephesians 6, 1 through 2. There we read this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Key qualifier. For this is right. Honor your mother and father. There is the fifth commandment. Which is the first commandment with a promise. And what Paul means by this promise is that there's a promise connected to this idea of rearing our children in the name of Jesus. It greatly increases their chances of growing up and loving God as they, as they grow, of becoming the type of member of society that God desires them to be. Therefore, it is connected to an important promise. Our lives will flourish when we raise our kids in, in Jesus and when our children grow to value those same truths we have imparted into their hearts. Now, that's a really beautiful and picturesque idea. But the truth is it's a very problematic idea in our world today, especially in our culture, where words like authority and obedience are often met with contempt, because of our bent towards personal autonomy. This is very true in a lot of parts of the world, perhaps nowhere more seen than in the American mind, where we deeply value individualism and personal autonomy. Now, we're not against these things. We just want to make sure that if we have this understanding of autonomy in our lives, that it's actually subjected to the grace of Jesus, not necessarily the way we define it. So the autonomy worldview is one of the main things often keeping people from experiencing a fullness of life in Christ. All of the relationships that Paul has just spoken about, including child and parent, will be savaged if we think that promoting the need of self and individual autonomy above all else is the highest aim we have in life. In fact, if you look at our culture today, a lot of what sociologists say are beginning to break down some of the fabric of it is this desire to put self above others. If the collective whole of our world cares more about self than others, what tends to happen is everybody, the Bible explains it this way, will begin to do what is right in their own eyes. And when you begin to do what is right in your own eyes, you are often blinded to the reality of what is best for the culture, the society, the family, the marriage, whatever the relationship is, we, are, we have a much greater chance of damaging it. And this is true for both believer and non-believer alike. Let me just begin with this. For those of us in the Christian faith, if we have an issue with being obedient, especially if we have an unhealthy understanding of what this means, we will never mature in the grace of Jesus because the scripture is very clear that one of the greatest marks of a disciple, men or women following Christ, is when they desire to not just follow Jesus, but to obey him, but to, he to hear his words, to listen to them, and to do our best in his grace to have them become a reality in our heart and life. 
In fact, there's been a major shift in how both the believing and the unbelieving world think about this today. Many people are less skeptical about the spiritual side of Christianity. That's been a real change in the era of modern science, which we are not against here, let me be clear. But it was sort of like 20 years ago, people had a challenge with the, with the miracles of Jesus. They couldn't understand how that could happen. Now today, people seem to be more spiritual than ever. They're okay with these things being a reality, not just in our faith, but in some of the other ones. But they often have a real problem with the obedience to Jesus part. It's sort of like the objection has shifted a little bit. It's shifted to the side of faith that actually asks us to be remade into the image of Jesus. And that is part of what pursuing Christ is. We constantly try to grow in his stature and in his grace. We grow into his image. And the world would be a much greater place if everybody was growing into the image of Jesus. Consequently, there are some unhealthy stereotypes associated with the word obedience in our world and certainly in Christianity and what it looks like in the Christian life. And I want to share a big one with you right now. There's a, a slew of objections we can talk about here today, but I want to share a personal story with you. Something that happened with a conversation I had with my grandfather years ago, a tongue-in-cheek uh, conversation. And so I, like most of you, have two grandparents, uh, my, uh, two sets of grandparents. They are both passed away now. And my grandfather, my, on my father's side, he passed away before I was born, about eight months before I was born. He was an immigrant from Italy. My other grandfather was a firecracker uh, Irishman, sort of an interesting combination. It created a, a stick of dynamite in our family, these two sort of ethnic worldviews. But nonetheless, it was a very common and traditional New York upbringing. And so in our family, especially with my grandfather, tongue-in-cheek conversations are very valued. The language of sarcasm is how you communicated love to one another. And so when he passed away, I, I missed a great many things about him. But one of the things I most miss is some of the really interesting, they were steeped in sarcasm, but nonetheless, they were really interesting conversations about faith. They know I've been a pastor for just shy of 20 years. And whenever I was around my, or I'm around my family, especially my grandparents, my grandfather would always poke at me in very aggressive ways. So I want to share with you one conversation out of many that happened. Now, the family of origin, I want to just remind you, steeped in sarcasm. So jesting is a form of affection. And my grandfather's deeply committed to this. And so one weekend, I was visiting my grandparents, and he thought that this was a really good time to let me know what he thought about pastors. All right? It was his sort of take on them. And it was really funny because my grandfather was highly irreligious. Like, it's pretty fair to say against it. And uh, he, he had a really interesting upbringing. He was a South Brooklyn kid, a combat Marine. He became an iron worker and enjoyed stepping on top of the Verrazano Bridge as they were building that thing in, in New York, which is a crazy thing for me to think about. But he was like that. He was sort of like hard as nails. And he had no qualms about sharing anything with anybody and speaking his mind. And so he would regularly speak to me about what he thought I did and what pastors did. And he literally believed, you know, that I, my, my, the entirety of what I do is that I showed up here once a week and for 30 minutes, made a bunch of stuff up and shared this stuff with you. And you all found such a value in the 30 minutes of made up stuff that I'm bringing to you that you would all be very compelled as you walked out of this place to give me all of your money. That was his literal description of pastors. What he thought is, I talk to you and then you give me all your cash and 401ks as you leave. Okay, That's pastoring according to my grandfather. 
Well, true to form, several years ago while visiting him, he took this sarcasm to a whole new level. And he literally started preaching. I mean, it was kind of humorous to watch. He was preaching a sermon on what he thought I said to you all on a weekly basis. And he took like the posture of the fire and brimstone guy, which is not my demeanor at all, you know, jesting again. But he kept saying things like, he, and he was holding like a newspaper, and he'd say, hey, the good book says, all of you need to put your money on my plate and let me sort it out for you. And then he would move to his other point and say, if you give me your money, you know, I'll make sure that you all see heaven. And he was just going on and on with this stuff. And even though I knew he was messing with me, usually in sarcasm, there is some root or grain of truth. And so I, I knew that to a certain degree, maybe even greater than I thought, he believed that this was the reality. And so after about five minutes of that sermon, which I explicitly told him was the worst in the history of all of humanity, my family just looked at me. They were sort of waiting to see how I would respond. And so doing what my grandfather would respect, I responded to him with another sarcastic, sarcastic train of thought. And I immediately asked him for his wallet because I thought, hey, if that's what you think happens, I'll, I'll throw my dice here and see what goes on here. I did tell him that he was not a good teacher and that we had one fundamental problem with his whole message. And that is this good book he was quoting from. Because he kept sort of taking the good book, which was his reference to the Bible. And rather than actually talking about the things it actually said, he was talking about the things he thought that it said. And almost all of them revolved around this idea of authority. But the Bible said none of the things that he was saying. And in my experience, what I think is important here is to know that most Christians, when they spend time in the real good book, when they understand the nature of the way God works, has worked and is working, when they understand the authority of the kingdom of heaven, when they are in church families that value a Christ-centered understanding of authority, you are seldom going to find an unhealthy type of autocratic authority, which is what he thought the whole church world was about. And I'm sure it is that way in some places, but it is not like that here. And so we had a wonderful opportunity to talk about this. And even though it was a humorously awkward situation, our family is sort of thick-skinned, and that jesting, although I knew he was being sort of serious, was also his way of showing me some form of affection. It also communicated something very serious to me, and that is that there are a lot of people outside of the faith that might see the Christian life and think that it is some blind authoritarian structure filled with mindless people. But that isn't true, because obedience in any Christian relationship, no matter what it is, the way we treat each other, the way we follow Jesus, the way husband treats wife and wife treats husband, the way we treat our children and the way our children treat us, the way we carry ourselves in, the, in our vocations and our schools, no matter where we are in contact with people, we are supposed to use a steep sense of discernment when somebody is telling us what to or not to do. Never is authority and obedience in the Bible used to take advantage of or abuse another person. So if you're ever in a situation where that's happening to you, in a church or outside of it, you should be really mindful of the fact that this is not what Scripture teaches when it comes to godly authority. And this is very important to know because it doesn't, it, when we speak about parenting, that type of abuse is not what the Bible speaks about here. It's a different parenting paradigm that causes us to really seek out what authority means from the perspective of God. This is especially true for children. Maybe you grew up in a home uh, or you are a young adult now, maybe you found yourself in an environment where there's been unhealthy or ungodly parenting uh, principles. You know, maybe you were around people that were taking advantage of you. We want to be very cautious about what we mean when we say obey and honor. Not blind obedience, but an understanding of honoring and obeying the very truths and the principles of the Bible, of what Jesus has told us. And so while children are clearly told to honor and obey their parents, 
in verse 4, you have probably noticed when it was read earlier, fathers, parents in general, are also instructed to not hurt or take advantage of their children. Paul says don't exasperate them. He says your children are supposed to honor and obey you. So don't do anything to, literally, the definition of exasperate is like excessively incite them, to rile them up, to take advantage of them, or to hurt them. There is a mutual understanding of obedience here. One requires the parent to know what God says about obedience. And the other requires the parent, I mean, the, the parent to teach the child what God says about obedience. So that nowhere in that relationship structure is there a form of authoritative abuse. In Paul's teaching, parents also have an obedience structure they fall under. And the people who grew up only reading uh, verse 2, up to verse 2, and left 3 and 4 behind, likely grew up in very heavy-handed Christian homes that were very authoritarian. That's a problem. We are required to exercise a parental love and authority over our children that reflects the goodness, the kindness, the truth, and the grace of Jesus. And so when we as parents lead our children like this, not in the autocratic, you know, do what I say kind of thing because I tell you to do it. I'm not saying that there's never a time for that. I'm just saying if that's our only MO with parenting, we are likely going to have a problem. When we parent, as Paul speaks about here, as the fifth commandment instructs us to, we greatly increase the potential for a healthy parent-child relationship to flourish. And this healthy obedience truth isn't exclusive to Christianity or parenting. In a world increasingly obsessed with autonomy, it would do us well to recognize the places of the world where the lack uh, or the, uh, an excessive uh, use of autonomy, autonomy would actually hurt us. Let me give you some examples. First, and perhaps most obviously, let's think about the law for a moment, which is also talked about in Scripture. There is the law of God, and then there is in New Testament books like Romans, we are communicated this truth about the law of men. And in many ways, the law of men has to be written in extensive volumes because we cannot obey the law of God. So we have all these laws now that are validating many of the laws of God, almost all of them. The law, our current law, is probably the most clear example of a healthy authority structure. And that structure could be viewed by some, and is viewed by some, as a denial of personal autonomy. There are prohibitions in the law for good reason. However, those things also provide a great benefit to us as a civilization. They attempt, through the law, it, it attempts to make our streets relatively safe and to keep chaos in check. And while I'm not arguing that the law is perfect in any way, because it is written by and executed by men and women, my point here is that without that type of authority, our country would likely be in a more dangerous place. And this is really self-evident in parts of the world where there is minimal, if any, law. If you have been to a part of the world that is very lawless, you will likely see chaos. You will likely see the great desire for people to take advantage of other people. Law is a great example. It, it helps to bind some sort of civility in the world that we live in. Here's another example, perhaps for those of you that are a little more artistic, less linear in their thinking. Think about obedience and authority from the angle of a conductor leading an orchestra. Think about it from the angle of what our worship team does every week. There are two ways you could look at the musicians down here or the music musicians maybe you enjoy listening to on the radio or in concert. There are two ways you could look at this whole thing. One would be that everyone playing music because somebody is instructing, everybody playing music has been denied their personal freedom to play the music they really want to play. And if that were the case, you would not listen to the music here on Sunday, you would not go to the concerts, and you would not listen to stuff on the radio. Because if every musician did what they wanted when they wanted to, it would likely produce a musical 
train wreck. That's what the outcome of that is. We can view the authority and the structure of beautiful music that way, or we can see that when everyone respects and trusts the authority of the leader, of the conductor, then what happens is you, you, you have a different understanding or respect for that person. There's a recognition that the conductor understands every moving piece and part of the music. They see the whole picture. Maybe in the way one musician cannot see the other one on the other side of the stage or in the orchestral pit, the conductor sees it all. And the result of a good conductor is they create a harmonious symphony, a musical masterpiece. You listen to that and want to purchase the song, or it moves you in your heart. The music is, is doing something in a way because there is a healthy structure that makes you want to return to it. This is an important thing to know. Authority, good, healthy authority, especially godly authority, is necessary on our earth. And if you think that that's not true, just look at what happens when a hurricane hits an area. After the food and the water and the gas run out, after three days, even if we know it's coming, and the two states I've lived in that have had major hurricane problems, Florida and Louisiana, society begins to break down a little bit. Somebody will literally hurt you to get a gallon of gas ahead of them if you try to get ahead of them. All of these things show us we need authority. We might in our hearts say personal autonomy is the best, and I'm not arguing that we shouldn't have individual trains of thoughts or ideas. I'm just saying raw personal autonomy like this is problematic in any relationship we have because it's more of a form of personal anarchy cloaked in the sophisticated robes of autonomy. And people who believe this way usually don't want to be subjected to anything but their own authority and usually have a, a, a very high value of imposing that on others, even if it hurts them. It almost always produces a highly narcissistic person who advances self at the expense of others. Throughout history, you will find there is no healthy place in history where this attitude has prospered a culture or a relationship. And that's important to know in our parenting because perhaps nowhere is the tension between obedience and autonomy so sharply seen as it is between parent and child. Some of this tension makes a great deal of sense because the particular charge parents are issued in this passage is to raise up our children in such a way that we guide them to Jesus and we do not provoke them to anger. In other words, we, the prerequisite for them to obey and honor us is that we're supposed to be living our lives to the best of our ability in a way where we are trying to honor and obey Jesus too. That's the dance that takes place between parent and child, child and parent. On the contrary, the instruction to obey changes significantly if we're dealing with people or structures or even parents who are raising kids in a way contrary to the ways of Christ. And this is very true when, when we leave the home and move from obedience to honoring, which is what we're going to talk a little bit about more next week. So if you were raised in an environment or are raising an environment or have seen an environment where the rule of law, the iron fist of control is the parenting technique, we're trying to manipulate kids in a way that you're, you're trying to bring about a controlled set of circumstances in their life, or you've seen somebody trying to take advantage of children, those scenarios usually end up with a very black and white understanding of what we're talking about today. They usually end up with a child, keyword here, who might obey while under the roof. But if somebody is subjected to that for 18 or 20 years, that turns into open rebellion once they leave. You either create a coward or a rebel. That's what the iron fist usually produces in a parenting home. This is where the real hard work of parenting lies. We've got to raise our children up in a way where we don't provoke them into bad habits, all the while teaching them by example and instruction to be competent and wise, to discern healthy authority in their own lives as they move into areas where other people are attempting it, to exercise it over them, or they are in positions of life where they have authority over people. To live in such a way where they want to honor their parents 
even after they leave the home. And the idea behind this is we've got to teach them the importance of, of a Christ-centered authority and obedience. We have to help them to understand and respect the term Jesus is Lord because he is a good Lord and a kind Lord and a Lord who has our best interests at heart. What he offers us is so that we can know the Father in heaven and flourish on this earth. And he does this in such a way that we are raising our kids to hopefully lead them to a place where they avoid the common pitfalls of child anarchy or revolt. And so as Christian parents, we truly are called to bring up our kids and to raise them in a way that we are comfortable with releasing them for Christ. That's truly what parenting is. If we believe everything we just read a few moments ago, that they are a gift from God, and from the very moment that they are given to us, we are leading them in a way, helping them to grow in their love for Christ. What we should be doing is equipping them to know and grow in the grace of Jesus. That's the main goal here. We're raising them to be a competent, Christ-honoring man or woman who will leave a mark on this world for Jesus when they step into it on their own. And this isn't always easy to do for a number of reasons. One of the biggest challenges is the ever-changing and complex nature of the parent-child relationship. Let me just summarize it very briefly. Think about this. Parenting starts out with a kid being totally dependent on their parents to provide every need of their life. You don't provide them food. You don't provide them water. You don't provide them milk. You don't provide them shelter. They will not live. That is the nature of parenting on this earth. Their basic nurture, their basic care, utterly in our hands for a very elongated season of their early years. But then they grow a little bit. This is sort of where my kids are like uh, now, on the back end of this, at least my girls. This quickly turns into a season where our kids must practice what we as parents would consider, or at least I would consider, a raw obedience to what we say. We focus a little more on the obedience because if they don't, they will not live to see another year. We have to say things like, don't stick your finger in an electrical outlet, okay? Right? I did that once when I was a kid with a piece of metal and I literally almost electrocuted myself and all of the sheets on my bed, sparks were flying out of the outlet. And my mom was furious at me because I about set the house and myself on fire doing that. She had told me multiple times not to stick anything in outlets, but I did. I did not listen, right? There are these commands where if our children don't listen to them, they might greatly hurt themselves. Or we say things like, you have to eat your vegetables. They're actually important for you. Or we say things like, don't hit your sister, right? Don't run out into the street. Don't talk to strangers. It's not that we don't want to explain these truths to our children. It's just that they have to learn that there is no negotiation time in that moment. In that moment, you want them to trust you enough to listen so you can explain why afterwards. These rules are not often popular with children. But little known to them, obeying them really does keep them alive. That's how it is when they're children. But that also changes as they begin to grow. I mean, wouldn't it be nice in the teen years if our greatest concern about our children was sort of, you know, sticking their fingers in an electrical alley? It's usually much more complicated by that point. They know not to do that, but their problems get more complicated as the world gets more complex for them. And that's really the takeaway from this passage. They change and grow. And honoring and obeying our understanding and application of that must change and grow too. That is the driving idea behind this verse. Honoring and obedience are sort of two different things. We ask our children to obey us when they're kids, but you cannot demand obedience. You, you can demand obedience from your 35-year-old with three kids, but it's not likely to be reciprocated. At that point, honoring is really what matters. There's a healthy relationship enough between parent and child to where the child wants to honor mom and dad 
while having an incredible amount of wisdom to make changes in their life as they grow. There has to be this marked shift in the way a parent treats a child through these different stages. And at some point, the bottom line is this, we have to stop ruling over them like little children out of necessity and start preparing them to be young adults. And that's really part of it, what it means to raise a child up. We have to grow in our parenting as they grow as children. As much as it often saddens us to see our kids grow up, and I say this from experience, my children are not little anymore, and there's something sad about that, but there's also something really good about that. We are to raise them up in a way from childlike obedience to the place where the things that have valued, we have valued from Scripture begin to value, they value them. Things like when we say, listen, as kids love Jesus, we want them to actually own that one day. When we say, hey, read your Bible, we want them to actually own that one day so that they can converse about these truths we speak about every week. When we say, hey, it's important that you, you care about your neighbor, that you think about your friends, even at young ages, we want them to get that. When we say, hey, work hard, make a difference in this world, we want them to leave the house honoring that. When we say things like get good grades now in these younger years, we want them to care about that as they leave the home, as grades turn into their careers. We want them to value these biblical truths about not only caring for your own needs, but for the needs of others. We want them, when we say we love you as a family, like we just saw here, we want our kids to love their families. One day, all of those things we ask them to obey as children, we pray that they will become ethics of the heart that are practiced when they leave our care. That's what Paul's speaking about here. Because they've truly penetrated their heart, and it's caused them to want to continue to practice them after they are no longer under our care because of honor. Now, that can really be one of the great marks of how we've parented. Do our children retain the core Christian values of how they've been raised? Hear me when I say this, while having the wisdom to make godly adjustments as they come into their own and eventually raise their own children. This is how we'll wrap up. It's the last thing I want to say. Maintaining health in the parent-child relationship is bound up in both the child and the parent evolving with the relationship as it moves from a childlike obedience to an adult-like honoring of the other party. If we get this... The promise, as Paul talks about, of our children growing up to love God increases. If we miss this, will you get the point? It decreases. Next week, we will talk more about this in its entirety. But for today, I want to leave you with this last idea. Parenting is one of the most difficult and rewarding tasks that we can undertake on this earth. It is beautiful, challenging, rewarding. As a parent, I want you to hear, God does not expect perfection from us in this area. And any parent who has claimed to have found perfection is crazy. I don't know how else to say it. There's, we need a sense of discernment there. It is impossible to parent perfectly because it is a relationship. We wouldn't need any of these teachings in the Bible about how to treat each other if we as people could get these things right without the grace of Jesus. It is impossible to parent perfectly. And if we attempt to parent perfectly, what will happen is we will likely put ourselves under a weight of failure that, we can, that will damage us deeply. It's somewhat ironic that for as true as this principle is, for as long as parenting has been on this earth, with every new generation, mine included, there's almost always some idealistic expectation that the key to perfect parenting has been found. The paradigm has been solved. You think I'm kidding? Go search healthy parenting in the Amazon bookstore today, and you will be there for five weeks reading every person's offer to your life on how to make, perfect, make parenting perfect. I'm arguing strongly here for the fact that we have to learn and grow in our parenting relationships. This is a 40-minute message about honoring obeying that we will spend the rest of our lives applying to our children, our children, to us, to grandkids. This whole thing is a relationship. And so I want to strongly caution you against believing that God holds you to a standard of perfection when it comes to raising children. 
And equally so, I want to caution you against perpetuating any myth that a singular idea or philosophy will perfect the parenting relationship. The bottom line here is this. Much like our relationship with Christ, parenting is filled with joy, it is filled with sorrow, it is filled with success, if we're going to be honest, and failure, with times of great peace and nail-biting anxiety. In all these seasons of life, all of this happens. Nobody escapes this. In all of those seasons of emotion, no matter what they might be, mountaintop or valley, we have an incredible opportunity to grow with and show our children the very same love, care, and grace Jesus shows us. That's part of what honoring and obeying is and being a parent worthy of, of being honored and obeyed. All of the things we expect from Christ in our moments of weakness, our moments of trial, our failures, our successes, all the things we have come to expect from him have to be present in a parental relationship. And when that happens, we not only grow in the grace of Jesus with each other, we grow in our love and care for each other. And so as we close, remember, being a perfect parent is impossible. I'm encouraging you, myself included, grow in parenting skills, read the scriptures, search the truth, don't ever settle for today, but know becoming a perfect parent is not possible. Our kids know that. As we age, we look at our parents, and at least in my life, I'm more thankful for the positives. I had a lot of negatives in my teens and 20s, like nothing but them. But as I've grown, my perspective has changed a lot. I realized in some senses how hard it was to, to raise me, and I think that happens as we become parents. We realize it's not as linear as we think it might be. Parenting perfection impossible. However, being a Christ-honoring parent is not impossible because you can do that in the strength of Jesus. And so live in Christ's grace today, no matter where you find yourself on the parenting spectrum. The commitments you've made as parents, think about that here this morning. You have made the commitment today and will spend your life bringing those commitments to fruition. And no, you don't go that alone. We are here for you, and we pray that you are here for the other parents in this room as they bring children into this world in the years and the, the weeks and the months that follow. Ask yourself this morning, what is Jesus saying to you about how God's love for you, how his fatherly love for you should shape your parenting, and what will you do about it as you leave this place today? Amen. Father in heaven, thank you for...